This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. As always, a huge thanks to everyone who has been reading my new book, Insatiable, A Love Story for Greedy Girls. It's available from all bookshops, and I think some signed copies are still available online from Blackwells at biggreenbookshop.com and at the Margate Bookshop, who can post nationwide. Or if you ask at your local indie, I can send some signed book plates. I'd also like to tell you about my new podcast, Daisy is Insatiable conversation about love, lust, appetite, emotions and desire with guests including Jolly Alderton, Andy Osho, Paul Mendez and Holly McNish. You can find this on iTunes, Acast, Spotify and wherever you get your podcasts. Now on to today's guest. Social media might not be everyone's favourite place but the writer Robert James Jr aka at son of Baldwin uses it as a real force for good. His debut novel The Prophets was an instant New York Times bestseller. Drawing comparisons with Toni Morrison and Zora Neale Hurston, it tells the story of Samuel and Isaiah, two enslaved men on a Virginia plantation. Their tender and passionate love story is punctuated by racism and brutality. Robert is a vital voice for our times and a cheerleader and a champion of contemporary literature. We talked about the importance of celebrating your peers and his decision to become book brothers with black buck author Matteo Escaripo being part of the Gail Jones fandom and Wonder Woman. Now, I know your Twitter handle is um, Son of Baldwin, and I would love to know about your relationship with James Baldwin's writing and when he came into your life and when you fell in love with it. I fell in love with James Baldwin's writing in my first real semester in undergraduate school in college. Um, I read an essay by him called here be dragons and i think it might have been his last essay before he passed away and he just spoke with such clarity and beauty and such perceptiveness about the human condition in particular in the ways it affects those who live at the intersection of blackness and queerness and myself being a black queer young man 
who was looking to be a writer, I immediately felt a kindred spirit in Baldwin. So after I read that initial essay, I searched everywhere for all of his works, collected everything I could possibly read by him, and happened to come across a PBS documentary about his life. And in that documentary, toward the end of it, his brother, his surviving brother, um, talked of his last days and some of the last things he ever said. And one of the things he said was, he knew he was dying and he said, I hope that someone finds me in the wreckage and continues this work. And I thought, why isn't, and this was like maybe in 2006, 2007. And I thought, why isn't anyone talking about this man's work? He's so important. He's, he's doing so much. He's saying so much, so much of what he's writing applies to now. And I said, well, maybe I can start us having that conversation again and created Son of Baldwin in tribute to him. And that is how it all got started. Are there any other writers where you see sort of sparks of, of Baldwin's influence or, you know, writers who give you that same kind of emotional tingle? I don't know if I see Baldwin's influence in a lot of writers. No, no one wrote like him. He, he was such a, a, a unique writer, but there are other writers who I think are absolutely brilliant, one of which is Toni Morrison, who recently passed away. Um, she writes with such power and beauty. She is also highly perceptive, particularly in her fiction. Um, I, I think she's writing things in a way where she made the English language her own language. It's, it's literally Morrisonian, the way she writes. I have, I have had to read all of her books at least three times to understand them. But once you understand them, oh my mercy, the, the beauty that's revealed, the truths that are revealed is just so phenomenal and so overwhelming. I absolutely adore her writing. And I would dare say that she might have been the greatest writer who ever lived. Uh, one of the things I love about doing this is Toni Morrison is one of those writers that almost like God, I think, in her omnipotence, in her omnipresence, that so many writers from so many different spaces owe such a debt to her and how lucky we are to have that work. I mean, it seems it's really reductive to say like, so what's your favorite? But um, do you have what a book of hers that resonated with you the most? That is like choosing between your children. Each of her books have a different importance to me. Um, and my favorites change all the time. Right now, my favorite is Sula, which is her second novel about a, a friendship between two Black women in this kind of tight-knit Black community. What I love about that novel is it's the first time that I ever got to see the Black woman as an outlaw, outside of my own life, that is. Because in my own life, there are women who are very sure of themselves, have complete clarity about themselves, and who refuse any patriarchal definitions. Mm -hmm. But it was the first time in literature that I ever encountered a Sula. And also just beyond seeing that wonderful depiction um, that was sort of illicit and, and scary and also beautiful at the same time, is the language. Um, Toni Morrison's description of the landscape is some of the most beautiful I have ever seen described of a place. And I also love the idea 
that in Sula, there is no consideration of the white gaze. These black people are valuable in and of themselves from their own perspectives. And that was something that immediately struck me about the book and something that I immediately loved about it. And that is currently my favorite. What was your relationship like with reading growing up? Were you someone who always read or was there a moment or a book that really ignited that passion? I have to thank my mother who um, read me stories as a child. Um, some of the first stories she ever read me were Peter and the Wolf and um, The Cat in the Hat which I really, really loved those stories. And that ignited my love of reading. Um, and then my father bought me my first comic book at the age of four. And that was probably what ignited the idea that I could maybe be a writer. Because what I would do once I learned how to write, I would rewrite some of the comic book stories with you know drawing little stick figure pictures with myself in them. And that has sort of been a recurring theme throughout my life about trying to write myself back into narratives because much of what I read did not include people like me. So yes, I was an avid reader, but it wasn't until I was about maybe 16 years old and I read um, Terry McMillan's book, Mama, which was her first book, that I realized, oh, you can do this. And so, maybe I can actually write a, a sweeping story about my own family because I didn't even understand that it was okay to write about my experiences and my family. And it was my first attempt at writing a novel at age 16. I didn't finish it. It, it, it was a lot of work and I didn't know what went into it. It looked easy because I read the finished product of someone else, but I didn't realize how much work it took. Um, so at 16, I started writing my first novel and never finished it and started writing short stories and things like that. But my love affair with books has never ended because it's where I find inspiration. It's where I find solace. It's where I find a safe space. And it's where I connect with people who I would have never connected with otherwise. Um, I read a report not too long ago about how reading inspires empathy in, in people. And so maybe that's why I have such a grand sense of empathy is because I have read all of these books I have read um, all of these different experiences. And as James Baldwin says, you realize that your pain isn't your pain alone, that everyone in the entire world, that is what connects you, is that we're all in some way suffering. And so then you, you're inspired to be maybe a little kinder to someone else, afford someone else a little bit more grace. I think you're so right that reading, when we see ourselves in a story and we realize that our stories can be important and significant. That's so powerful, but it's also reading that shows us that everyone's story is significant and powerful. It's such a leveler. I think it's the most democratic hobby going, mm, really. Indeed. When you spoke about reading for solace, what are those books? You'd, I'm sure some of the ones that you've already mentioned about kind of are in that category, but you know, the books that you sort of have maybe looked to in the last year during a, a difficult year I think for everyone for sort of pleasure and entertainment and escapism. I just finished The Secret Lives of Church Ladies by Disha Filia which was nominated for the National Book Award here in the States. It is such a lush beautiful warm embracing set of short stories about black women and their relationships to the church, which can often be 
a hostile space for Black women, but can also be a place of community for Black women. This book was like eating your favorite comfort food. It was just, in fact, one of the, the um, short stories is called Peach Cobbler, which is a, a very Black Southern dish that um, is a dessert and that um, many Black people eat in the Southern part of the United States or those who have Southern roots in the United States. And that is what that book felt like to me. It felt like a warm dish of peach cobbler that you eat on a, a, a cold winter's evening bundled up under covers. It was just such a beautifully written, it was almost like a love letter. I absolutely adored it. Another of the books that really, really impacted me over this last period was These Ghosts Are Family by Maisie Carg, a story about generational trauma of all things, but the way in which she weaves language and time and people throughout this novel, it's just a wonder to behold. It, it was, she speaks partly in Jamaican dialect. She speaks partly in the Queen's English. Um, it is so lovely and so heartbreaking, but also her characters remind me of people I know. So I feel like I'm in a familiar place. And those were two of the books that really comforted me throughout this troublesome time and really made me feel loved. I don't think you can give a more glowing review than that, a book that made you feel loved. And it's funny, I think, especially in contemporary fiction, um, sort of where women are at the center, there's a real, I think, trend or fashion or whatever you want to call it for the unlikable woman in this idea. Like, oh, no, you shouldn't have to, you know, like people. You should. But there's definitely, I think, something about characters that whether or not they're, I think there's a big difference between being likable and being nice or good. And I think my favourite books are the ones where there is pleasure to be had from spending time with these characters. And hopefully, you know, ideally they are sort of, they're fully realised and as flawed as anyone. But I, I think that seeing the people you love and recognising people from your own world in a book, that's such a moving experience. Indeed, it, it was incredibly moving. And Maisie and I actually were in the MFA programme together. Um, that's where I met her. And I remember her working on the first um, little bits of that book. And that was, that was 2006. So both of us have been writing for a really long time. I was also in that program with Reese Kwan, who wrote The Incendiaries. And the three of us both started, all three of us started our books at the same time. And um, Reese's came out first, then Maisie's came out, and now mine. Um, it's, and it's, it's just wonderful to see us sort of as this triumphant trio <laughs> to, Definitely. to finally and i bet they're thrilled at the mfa program oh yes um the the current president of the department uh the chair of the english department emailed me a few days ago to say your class has published the most books out of any class that has come out of the mfa program is seven of six or seven of us and so i was like wow that's that's really impressive <laughs> can i cheers that <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> You'll notice I love Wonder Woman. 
So I have, <laughs> I have my Wonder Woman mug. She's one of my favorite superheroes of all time. <laughs> I did want to ask you about your fabulous mug. Uh, and that brings me back to comics and graphic, graphic novels. Um, and so was Wonder Woman one of those first characters that you discovered? Oh, I absolutely loved Wonder Woman from the moment I set eyes on her. And I think part of it was I didn't yet have the language to talk about my own queerness. I was maybe three or four when I knew that there was something different about me from what I can perceive with other little boys. But I didn't know what those words were or what they or what that feeling meant. But when I saw Wonder Woman, there was something about the powerful femininity, the the flamboyance that really connected with me. I mean, she wore jewelry that was also defensive weaponry, bracelets that can deflect bullets, a tiara that could be thrown like a boomerang. Like, what is that and how can I have those things? I used to actually make bracelets out of cardboard and aluminum foil so that I could wear the bracelets and do the things that Wonder Woman did. I was such a <laughs> flamboyant child, I, I really was. And my love for Wonder Woman and my father buying me the comic books and then me realizing, wait a minute, there are Wonder Woman comic books set me on a path. I've been collecting comic books for over 40 years. And so that's in large part because of Wonder Woman, Linda Carter, who embodied that character with such grace. I can't think of another fictional superhero that has had more of an impact on me. Um, in fact, there's a new book coming out this year called Wonder Woman Historia, written by Kelly Sue DeConnick and drawn by a gentleman by the name of Phil Jimenez, which looks at the history of the Amazons from the Amazon's point of view, because so often we get the patriarchal version of who the Amazons are. But this is from their own point of view. And from what I understand, it's going to be incredible. And I can't wait to get my hands on it. Here I am, almost 50 years old, still enamored by Wonder Woman. <laughs> well, again, you know, like Toni Morrison, she is undeniable. Um, I thought if I just compared Wonder Woman and Toni Morrison, I'm not sure you can do that. But you know, Wonder Woman certainly, you know, she is. Uh, people say icon all the time, but she truly, truly is. And I love that observation as well. I'd never thought about it before. I'm like, oh yeah, of course, you know, superhero like throwing tiara, and it's only just now that you're pointing out how radical that is the sort of, you know the mix of the aesthetic and the functional that's way more exciting than like i'm a transformer and now i'm a car <laughs> right <laughs> it is it, it is absolutely and, and i was ab immediately drawn to that her her weaponry and she always used it not as a deadly thing it was always in defense um she has a magic lasso that compels people to tell the truth like what is more radical than that? You have to face your own truths when you're bound by her lasso. It, she's just a fabulous character. <laughs> Are there any sort of contemporary graphic novels or new comics that you've been reading or that have caught your eye? Yes, um, there is a comic book called Far Sector. It's published by DC Comics. It's written by N.K. Jemison, the sci-fi um, and speculative fiction writer. And it's drawn by a gentleman by the name of Jamal Campbell. It is I didn't realize, realize the genre could be that transformative. N.K. Jameson and Jamal Campbell are doing things in that medium 
that I didn't imagine were possible. It's almost like the two of them coming together to make sure that this work is alive. It, it almost feels like the characters are moving, like they're talking in a two-dimensional form. So it's just so bizarre. It's about a young Black woman who is a Green Lantern sent to the furthest regions of the universe to sort of get these two warring factions to find peace. And it is complicated and political and intriguing and action-packed and just beautifully written. If you haven't read it, it, if this is the first comic you read, it will spoil you because you will never be able to look at other comic books in the same way because this is just so layered and textured and lovely. I love it. It's called Far Sector. <laughs> and I love the sound of the vastness and the ambition oh. and that it's a truly enormous and layered universe. I do not read graphic novels as much as I would like to. Um, you know, I want to, and I know that like, you know, Alison Bechdel, obviously, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm going in. This is, um, you're stacking my TBR pile way up. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the books on the shelf behind you. I can see The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. I hear that's very, very good. <laughs> um, what about that book? Uh, I don't know if that's, uh, this one? Yeah. P.S.A. Layman's How to Slowly Kill Yourselves and Others in America, which is a collection of essays. P.S.A. Layman, I dare say, is probably our generation's James Baldwin. He writes so clearly about American race relations, about blackness, about loving your body and yourself, about autonomy, about violence in a way that is reminiscent of Baldwin, but so much more contemporary. Um, he's an oracle, an absolute oracle. And he's also one of the kindest and most loving people I have ever met in my life. And I often return to his work when I'm feeling weary or when I need strength. He has written um, a memoir called Heavy, which is one of the most brilliant memoirs I have ever read. He's written, written this collection of essays, and he also wrote a novel called Long Division, in which he imbues Black children with a sort of dimensionality that I have never seen before. They, he's given them an interior life and a sense of adventure that I had always longed for, and I wish that was the book that I read when I was a child, because it would have changed my entire perspective about who I am and what my community is. Lovely, lovely writer and brilliant, and also incredibly has an endless capacity for kindness. I love him. That really struck me when you're talking about your MFA program and your triumphant trio, that I think, especially now, it's a really complicated thing that writers do where it's possible to be so, so aware of your peers and, you know, all of their triumphs and successes. And especially now at this time over here, it's like books of the year. And, you know, I think writers raise writers and that I can only write because I'm so, so, so supported by both kind, kind peers and people who are who've been doing it for a lot longer than I have who are really, really good. And also, you know, the sort of the ghost mentors that you find in other spaces along the way. That is absolutely true. Someone asked the other day if I was intimidated by James Baldwin and Toni Morrison. And I said, oh, absolutely not. I'm inspired by them. They are where I find confidence and comfort. They help me to um, dream. 
someone else asked if I felt competition with, you know, writers who are writing alongside me. And I said, absolutely not. I don't see other writers as competition. I see them as community. The only person I think I'm in competition with is myself. I always want to be better than I previously was, a better person, a better writer, all of those things. Um, but the other people that surround me, I only have love and admiration for them and they only inspire me. When you're writing, can you read fiction kind of in that same period or do you have to be very careful about what you read and if you read? When I'm writing, I can't read anything else at all. Not, not nonfiction, not fiction. I have to sort of silo myself away and shut down all media and just sit with myself, meditate, think about the characters I'm writing or the, the setting I'm writing about because outside things become distractions. However, I do find that when I'm, say, on public transportation, riding the subway in New York or riding the bus, inspiration strikes really hard, like a lightning bolt. Because being surrounded by people, seeing their movements, seeing them talk to each other, seeing them hug, seeing them laugh, all fills me with the, the data that I need to construct these other characters that I'm writing with. Um, it gives me like that firsthand interaction. So I don't want to read other stuff when I'm, when I'm writing, but I do want to see people. That definitely makes sense. In the way that writing is so, so nourishing and so focusing, I think it does occupy a part of your brain that you need for other things. I am too much of a reading addict to be as strict with <laughs> myself. Good, but I'm learning. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll be back to Robert soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. There are things more beautiful than Beyonce by Morgan Parker. This is a laceratingly gorgeous, vicious, witty and deeply moving poetry collection. Parker explores blackness, womanhood and personhood through a contemporary lens. It's dazzling, but has an extraordinary tenderness at its core. Even her evocations of loneliness have a visceral, hopeful quality that made me ache for parties, people and sunny days. There are things more beautiful than Beyonce by Morgan Parker. It's published by Little Brown and out now. Now back to Robert. 
Um, I was wondering about books that you have um, had recommended to you that have taken you by surprise and um, if there are any books other than the ones we've spoken about that you are sort of keen to recommend to other people at the books you're most likely to give as gifts. A book that I actually did give as a gift um, to several family members was The Sexy Part of the Bible by Cola Booth. <laughs> that title alone, right? <laughs> I think you should also give that book to your new friend, me. <laughs> I'm, I'll, I'll get my own copy, but wow, it, what a title. Cola Booth is a writer of Sudanese and Egyptian background. And she's writing about blackness from a very African point of view, mixing in some speculative aspects. And it is a book unlike anything I have ever read. And it is a page turner. When I tell you she imbues it with all of this African mythology and this main character who is confused about who she is, but by the end is completely clear about who she is. It's just a wonder. And I, I wondered why the book wasn't in more hands. And so I tried to put it in, in as many hands as I possibly could. The other book that I felt that way about is Corregidora by Gail Jones. Oh my God, I love Corregidora. I read that in undergrad um, as an Africana studies minor. And I thought, why have I never heard of her? Why haven't I read this book before now? And how can I find more stuff by her? And I, I have on my shelf, up on the top shelf, these books are hers. <laughs> um, I went and found her books. And I just thought, if there's anyone that could give Toni Morrison a run for her money, it's probably Gail Jones. And what's odd is, or what's wonderful, is that Toni Morrison edited Gail Jones. She was the one that brought her into the publishing world and had her first published. And from what I understand, Gail Jones is still alive. So we still have this brilliant woman somewhere in the world, and hopefully she's still writing. And I hope others will discover her work and hopefully that will encourage her to come back into the public eye. Oh, God, I hope so. Cause I do, th I mean, I think uh, over here, Virago reissued Gregadora um, early last year. Mm. And I think we found um, producer Dale. What was that other Gail Jones book that we found that I've got on the tile? Um, the Healing. Hi Dale. Yes. Hello. <laughs> Yes, I have that one too, The Healing. Oh, so have you, have you read it? Can you tell me about it? I have not read it yet because I have a TBR list that is taller than I am, but that is on my list. I feel your pain there. Um, I'll just read this out very quickly and I'm going to keep, I'm going to interrupt my reading and read this next. Harlan Jane Eagleton is a faith healer traveling by bus to small towns, converting skeptics, restoring minds and bodies. Before that, she was a rock star's manager and before that, a beautician. And you're ready. Premise. I would love to know what it was about Corregidora that made you respond to it. It's written like a blues song. It has this rhythm and this music that I could almost I almost felt like I should have learned it to recite it by heart because it was almost like an oral history written down. I loved also how Jones was able to redirect our attention from the enterprise of slavery in the United States to Brazil, where that was the first time I encountered the fact 
that Brazil had the most enslaved Africans, that the largest black population outside of Nigeria in Africa is in Brazil, and that their slave trade lasted much longer than in the United States. And all of this because Gail Jones opened my mind to look at things in a different way and wrote it in such, oh, the music of that book is just, I'm getting goosebumps when, when I think about it. It's just wonderful. She's just a brilliant, brilliant writer. And I actually return to that book quite often, even though it is a hard read because of the, the horrors that it excavates. It is also biblical. I, the, the books that I love most are almost like my religion. They are certainly my spirituality. I don't read the Bible anymore. I, I no longer believe in Christianity. Not even objectives. <laughs> I I take the the literary canon by these wonderful writers like Gail Jones and Toni Morrison and Alice Walker and Gloria Naylor and Octavia Butler and, and James Baldwin and the list goes on. As my Bibles, they give me the directions and the, um, the morality that I need to live a life that is one in which I come into the world and leave it a better place than how I found it. And it's so exciting as well to think about all of the people who are going to be reading you and reading the prophets and they're going to go off and write and then people are going to go off and write because of them. And it's just thrilling. I, I hope that's the case. I hope that a reader of any identity, but particularly black queer readers will read the prophets and feel like my story is valid and I should tell it. Um, because writing is such a, a lonely or can be such a lonely enterprise and writers are filled with insecurities. But it is vitally important for writers to know that yes, writing is hard and writing is really just revision. You're gonna be writing this book over and over and over and over again. I was writing it for 14 years over and over and over again, but you must write it because we need your voice. It's a clumsy segue, but I'm curious about your very, very, very tall TBR pile. Um, what is reaching the top? Um, are there any books on there that you're especially excited about getting to? I am especially excited about getting to The City We Became by N.K. Jameson. Also, um, Luster by Raven Lilani. Um, I love that book. I, I can't so wait to read it. I, I cannot wait to read it. And I'm also, I have to really start this as soon as I possibly can because I'll be talking to her on tour, is The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. Actually, uh, Raven and Britt are um, former YB alumni. <laughs> oh, wow. Everything I've heard about these two books has just been phenomenal. And I just cannot wait. I have them on the shelf and I'm saying, I have to read these two books. I have to read these two books, but I'm currently touring and it's so hard to find the time, especially now to do it. But those are at the top of my TBR list. Um, remind me, I'm so sorry. The first book that you mentioned, which I don't know at all and I'd love to hear about. Um, the City We Became. Oh gosh, that's a big book. Fabulous cover. Um, Neil Gaiman is a fan, a glorious fantasy. From what I understand about it, it's a parable about gentrification in New York City where this, there's some aliens or something to that effect that are menacing the city's denizens and the city fights back. 
but that's right up my alley being a big comic book <laughs> kind of person. And she is the is the person who writes the Far Sector comic book that I was telling you. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, she's, a, she's an award-winning so novelist. She's amazing. I mean, I do know Luster and The Vanishing Half, I found them both supremely gulpable. Like, they were books <laughs> I had to tear myself away from in order to like brush my teeth and go to the bathroom and things. So, although, are you good, do you tend to, when you when you read a book do you read it in the addictive addicted frenzy or are you quite measured do you try because i often i read so fast and sometimes i think that i must be missing things i read so slowly i am such a slow reader because i am underlining and i am writing notes in the margins and i'm really considering the book from a socio-political point of view um i'm highlighting my the chapters of uh, the uh sentences that i think are most lovely and beautiful so it takes me a long time to read because I I will read and read and read obsessively, but slowly because I want to absorb everything that I can from the technique to the language. It sounds as though maybe that's what makes you a rereader as well, that I think that being a rereader is being an eternal student. I think so too, especially with my favorite writers, the ones that I think are divinity. I return to their books three times minimum. Um, and we'll reread, literally reread from front front to back their books over and over again. We go back to Luster. Something you probably know this already, but something I think you would really, really love and enjoy is it's one of the things I adored about it. It's such a great book about being a fan. Edie, the character, and I think I can say Raven as well, loves comics and graphic novels oh, nice. and sort of in fantasy worlds and really throws herself into that and the book sort of hurtles towards like a denouement where all that all that comes together but i'm i have a spooky feeling i'm going to really enjoy that i can't wait <laughs> i can't wait were there any books last year that you read or, or ever that took you by surprise where you thought oh i'm not sure how i'll i'll feel about this and then found yourself being completely carried away and um two books such a fun age by kylie reed love that book i didn't know what to expect i was like okay what what's going to happen here is race going to be adequately interrogated she did a fabulous job um, of looking at the strange way in which racism has an effect not just on the black person but also on the white person and the white person is completely unaware of of how that construct is demeaning them they think it's empowering them but it's having the absolute opposite effect kylie reed brilliantly uh shows us that the other is the incendiaries by aro kwan she writes with such lyrical beauty oh this is a story about someone who is a cult member who is going to blow up a building and yet it's so beautiful like <laughs> i can't I was like, how did she make an explosion sound like something that I would want to actually happen? <laughs> wow. um, that was just super surprising, but not really because I remember when Reese was first working on this book in the MFA workshop and I was just wowed by her, her turns of phrases and how her sentences are constructed. She did this really interesting thing with colons where everything kept revealing itself and I just thought, how did she do this? It's, it's, it was just fantastic. Those two books, very surprising 
and very beautiful. So she's managed to use language like an explosion where it starts and it keeps it wow. Where it just unveils itself like a like a like a mushroom cloud. It's it's just phenomenal work. Oh, also, but I don't know if this was last year. This might have been the year before. On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous by Ocean Vuong. Ocean and I both went to Brooklyn College and we met because of a, uh, we have a mentor in common, um, Ronnie Natoff, who's an English professor. And she introduced us and I met him at a poetry reading and he read this poetry and he read it. I don't know if you ever heard Ocean speak, but he speaks with such breathless beauty. He's just so sincere. And I said to Ronnie, I was like, who is that? Because that poem was beautiful and he read it so beautifully and she introduced us. And then he sent me um, maybe a year or so later, a short story that he was, a, a story he was working on, which would eventually become On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. And I, he said, could you give me some critiques of this? And I was like, no, because it's absolutely perfect. Like I am literally looking for a wrong comma or a misplaced period. I find absolutely nothing here that I can change. This is absolutely beautiful. And the, the product was On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous, which is one of the most beautiful books ever written. I don't know what to say, <laughs> but the, the energy in that story and the evolution of that relationship, and what a thrill, what a thrill to be so stunned and entranced by someone's talent and to say that, wow, they're amazing. And oh, I'll introduce you. A, a genius. And that's, that's one of the things about um, social media that I think is beneficial, is that it demystifies the idea of a genius. There, I have encountered so many brilliant writers, hundreds, that I realize that it is an utter blessing that I get to publish this with there, with there being so many other brilliant writers out there. Like, I'm not special. I don't feel special because I feel like there's so many special writers. There's so many brilliant people, artists of all kinds. And prior to the internet, prior to social media, we were sort of led to believe that it was rare, but it is not. It is so incredibly abundant. And I love that. It is a wonderful thing to live in a world where I will die not having read half the books I long to read and dream about reading. And <laughs> It's like there's been a new renaissance where the, the possibilities are infinite. Like I could, you have probably given me more than a year's worth of things to read now and writers who just sound fantastic, who I've never met and writers who are probably criminally underread, but I do think as awful as, as technology is, and I know I complain far too much about social media, but that we can discover these writers who deserve to be read so much more widely and they're so much more accessible to everyone than they were i think it's absolutely um encouraging i have a i met another writer online a, a few months ago maybe a few weeks ago whose book is re was released on the same day as mine his name is mateo ascarapur and he released a book called black buck we reached out to each other on twitter and we decided that we are book brothers because our books were released on the same day. They're dealing with similar topics about race and, and, and that um, milieu. And we feel like we should be community, that we should be supporting each other because of this. And now everywhere I look, we're linked. Um, in the LA Times, his article was on top and mine was on bottom. When um, all of these bookstores are, are publishing photos of their um, book displays for the new year, his book is next to mine. And so we feel connected, even though we've never met, 
he lives in um, the neighborhood one over from mine. We're both left-handed and we're finding out all of these things about each other and we're really forming this bond and this closeness all because of social media and the fact that we're releasing our books on the same day. That's magical. Do you think you will ever meet? I guess we're all so restricted now, but when you can... We, we have made plans that when it is safe for us to meet, that we're going to meet and talk and break bread and just engage in, in radical brotherhood together. Um, I, I cannot wait to meet him. He sounds like a brilliant writer. I ordered his book. It hasn't arrived yet because um, everything's slow now because of the pandemic, but I can't wait to get my, my hands on it. I want to read it exactly after I read The Vanishing Half and Luster. <laughs> <laughs> I love how specific your pile is now. I can, I know, you know, where you are in your reading. Um, that's made me want to do the same thing. My book's coming out next month. I'm like, going to find someone who's got the same publication day as me and I'm going to, I'm going to be my book bud. What, what is the title of your book? Oh, it's called Insatiable, A Love Story for Greedy Girls. What was so weird is I got my proof of luster last summer and that was when I'd done my edit and it was all kind of, you know, in the works and, and finished and elements of that story. My heroine's a, a white woman named Violet, but she's sort of broken, bored at work, very unhappy, becomes part of this sort of open marriage. Um, oh. I think my book is much more sexually explicit than Raven's, but Raven's really has her moments. But that the sort of, lots of the themes are were spookily thought, oh gosh, this is so, and I love that, I love, um, Elizabeth Gilbert talks, I think, in Big Magic about how in the scientific community, lots of different people have very similar ideas at the same time. And no one thinks anything of it, but she thinks that happens all the time in, in literature and in art as well. We, we tend to think, oh, that person is stealing my idea or, or that person plagiarized my idea. But the truth of the matter is we're all drawing from the same creative forces. We're all being shaped by the same cultural elements. So there are bound to be similarities that have nothing to do with, I read your book and now I'm taking that idea. I may have never been exposed to anything that was remotely yours. And we might have sim simultaneously come up with similar ideas. That is the nature of humanity, I think. I think that is what human beings do, but capitalism makes us competitors. And so if capitalism is making us competitors and we see that someone is in our lane, we, we're almost instinctively taught to try to nudge that person out of the way. But I don't see it that way at all. I see it as a flower has many petals, but when it comes together, it's just that one flower. And I think that is how, for example, Luster and Insatiable will work together to make that flower fuller. Um, so I'm actually looking I'm going to have to add Insatiable to my TBR pile. <laughs> oh, oh but Robert, it's really, really teetering. Um, but I'm sure I can I can send you a copy. But no, it honestly, it thrills me because when I wrote my book, there was a real sort of initial like, oh gosh, this is a bit weird and a bit rude and we're not sure. And I find it so comforting and exciting. Also a little bit, Raven's writing is just so incisive and dark and funny and graceful and elegant and perfect and there was a bit of me reading it and I thought oh I don't think I ought to write anymore really <laughs> I'm gonna be a welder but um I'm just thrilled to 
live in the same universe as it in a way. And also I think the brilliant thing about reading is readers don't tend to think, oh, I've read my book for the year, I'm done. The more you read, the more you want to read. And if you read a book and you loved it, you're going to want to read a book that's sort of perhaps thematically similar in spaces. So honestly, I'm, I'm piggybacking on a huge success. I'm delighted. For me, when I read a writer that I like, if they have other works, I immediately want to buy all of their other works and read it. Um, just to make sure that I well read in particular writers. And that might also contribute to why it takes me so long to read and why my TBR list is is just like taller than me. But I can't help it. <laughs> I've had so many really, really strong debuts over the last couple of years. Who are the writers where you are waiting for their next work with bated breath? Well, Raven Lilani is one, um, even though I haven't started her her next book. Disha Filia is another. I'm, I am really keen on what she does next because that debut was just whew. the same with Ocean Vuong um, because his first novel was just tremendous. Aro Kwan, her first novel was just absolutely brilliant. Kylie Reed, I can't wait to see what she has for us next. Chloe Benjamin, who wrote um, The Immortalists. I, I cannot wait to see what she has in store for us next. Just so many, Lord have mercy. Let me look at my, my bookshelf, maybe something. I know, <laughs> Jump out. Like one of the nicest things that happened to me last year was discovering that Tayari Jones had a book before American Marriage. Oh, she, um, yes. Silver Sparrow. Right. And that, you know, it's almost like the, I, I don't know if this reference translates. Um, we have a, a craft children's show in the UK called Blue Peter. And here's one I made earlier to do sort of the work in progress. And that, so to feel as though having loved an American marriage so much and be like, oh, there's more and I don't have to wait. Here's Silver Sparrow. That was a good feeling. I was just looking at my bookshelf. I want to see, I don't know if you've heard of In West Mills by Deshaun Charles Winslow. Um, oh, no. It is a, a book about a woman named Not. K-N-O-T, who is very much in the vein of Sula, a radical woman in the South who is bucking all of the traditions um, and being her own person. I want to see what he has in store for us next, as well as Maurice Carlos Ruffin, who did um, We Cast a Shadow about sort of like a speculative fiction work about a young boy who is light skin and is turning dark and his father wants to pay for us a, a procedure to have the blackness removed from him dark and 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 heartbreaking work and i cannot wait for his next work which i think is a, a might be a, a set of short stories but those are just some of the the people that i can't wait for their new works wonderful um but i know we mentioned i think you mentioned a couple of short story writers but are there any short story collections that you've really loved and things that you keep close by you? The the only one that I have read in recent memory is Disha Filia's The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. I, I am not a big short story reader. The short stories really have to draw me in and wow me for me to actually go out and say, buy this book. Um, and that was the one in recent memory that really, really touched me in a way that no other short story collection has ever. The economy demanded by the short story, it's a real challenge and the writers who do it well, they're so dazzling. And the, the way that she does it is that 
Each of these stories are distinct and about distinct characters and distinct landscapes. And yet there's a golden thread running through them that makes them feel connected. Like these women could possibly know each other, that they could be going to the same church, um, that they could be living in the same community. And there's something almost novelistic about that, but at the same time, it's distinctly short story and lovely. Of all the books that you've talked about, um, maybe other than the um, the Gail Jones that I have right here, I think, sorry, what's it called? The Secret Lives of Church Ladies? The Secret Lives of Church Ladies. That is the one that's making me the most sort of goosebumpy and yearning and yes, I want that now. Robert, I cannot tell you what a pleasure it's been. I'm so, so excited for readers in the UK to discover the profits and be moved by it and fall in love with it. Are there any books at all that you haven't mentioned that you wanted to talk about before we finish up? Other books on my TBR list are um, Real Life by Brandon Taylor, um, which I think was nominated for the Booker Prize, and Memorial by Brian Washington. Um, from, from all accounts, that uh, Memorial is supposed to be a brilliant book and I cannot wait to get to it, but have mercy. I have so many books ahead of it. <laughs> <laughs> Those are two that I, I really want to read as well. Huge thanks to Robert. The Prophets is published by Quirkus and out now. It's a book that has the power to change its readers and I promise you will never forget it. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at MyBooked and if you've enjoyed this episode, it would make my day if you could leave us a five-star review. It helps new listeners to find the podcast. Find a list of all the books mentioned by Robert on acast.com booked and check out his selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. Finally, I leave you with this from Susan Sontag. I've spent many, many days of my life reading eight and ten hours a day and there's no day that I don't read for hours and don't ask me how I can do all the other things. I don't know. The day has pockets. You can always find time to read. See you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.